Reformation was not what God intended, but it was the vehicle, I think, and I, th- I believe it's providential that people began to look around and say, hey, Catholic Church is, is not uh, doing what, the, what God would have us to do. The, the Church of England or uh, the various Protestant movements uh, are not doing what uh, God would have us to do, and that ushered in this restoration movement. So we're going to talk a little bit about the Restoration Movement and uh, we're going to uh, uh, start with the early beginnings. Now let's keep in mind, these people who heavily influenced, especially in the beginning, the Restoration Movement, you know, I don't know how to really classify a lot of these men. I don't think they were necessarily brethren, but they played a big role in bringing the uh, church back to where God needed it to be, reestablishing the church. Uh, a lot of these men, when they, when they died, they died really being still associated with a particular denomination and holding a lot of those beliefs. Uh, a lot of men, when we get into the, the, the actual workings of the restoration, when it kind of goes into full-blown uh, mode. A lot of those men we're going to talk about held views contrary to what the New Testament holds. But here's something I think we need to keep in mind. And, uh, you know, it's a good thing that uh, the judgment on these men lie with God. We look at it, and here's what we know you have to obey the gospel plan of salvation, be a Christian, period. I don't know if necessarily. All of those men did that. And so now they're in God's hands. We know that if we want to get to heaven, we have to do that, right? At the same time, we need to understand that these men were coming out of darkness on their own. They didn't have help like I've had, like many of us here have had, to to come to an understanding to clear up some misconceptions that we may have regarding the faith. For instance, I believe that uh, Barton Stone obeyed the gospel I think he obeyed the gospel as it is written in uh, uh, the New Testament. But you know, he held some beliefs contrary to what the Bible teaches. Particularly, he believed that Jesus Christ was a created being. Well, that's in opposition to everything we read about in the Bible, right? How can we read John 1 and understand that Christ was anything other than and is anything other than God? But he held that belief based on uh, some statements that he misunderstood in the New Testament. Uh, so, you know, where's Barton Stone today? Well, he's in the Hayden realm. Did he die uh, having been saved? Well, that's not up to us to determine, is it? Uh, what's up to us to determine is we know what the rules are. We know what God has set forth. And so we need to make sure we do that. doesn't matter what anyone else does, does it? Uh, <clears throat> we're going to look at John Wesley a little closer. John Wesley never was a Christian. But he helped, and I believe providentially, to get this restoration movement also moving in the directions that we needed to uh, go. He died a member of the Church of England. Never was a Christian. But do we owe these men a debt of gratitude? I think so. And I think that's why we wanted to study and understand what brought about the Restoration Movement, what brought about the need 
uh, for the restoration movement. We're going to talk about uh, Alexander Campbell. He had some odd ideas on a lot of things, particularly uh, when it comes to the millennium. He didn't, I don't know that he was necessarily a premillennialist, but he was uh, something, okay? So we need to uh, kind of look at these men and appreciate them for what they are and understanding at the same time they're not our leaders, right? They helped a movement to to help to reestablish the Lord's church. Anyone here ever been called a Campbellite? You ever heard that? Uh, you know, I was called a Campbellite. I never heard. I didn't even know who Alexander Campbell was. Someone told me I was in the seventh grade. They said, well, you're a Campbellite. And I said, I'm a what? Never heard of him. You know, Alexander Campbell, he started your church. I said, I never heard of him. What do you mean? Then that interested me a little bit, okay? Do we appreciate the things that Thomas and Alexander Campbell did? Of course we do. But we're not a Stoneite. We're not a Campbellite. We're Christians. So we have to keep those things in mind as we look at this restoration move. Let's not set these men up above where they ought to be. Let's appreciate them, but we don't follow after any person. I guess that's where we need to begin. Okay. <clears throat> Let's begin with the early beginnings of uh, the Restoration Movement. When we look at <clears throat> the Revolutionary War, that's a political event for the most part, right? Though the, pol- the politics of the Revolutionary War overshadowed the religious, a big portion of the Revolutionary War had to do with religious freedom. It had to do with religious freedom. Being able to worship God how you want to worship Him, period. Right? Now, we're not uh, uh, supporting any kind of a, a religion that is in competition to God. There's one religion in the world that God has ordained. But <clears throat> we have to allow people to worship however they want to. That's the whole basis of Christianity, making a choice, right? Deciding for self, not being coerced into it. So this idea of tolerance has to be a part of the uh, evangelism of the church. We can't go in and buy Christians, right? Uh, That's what happens when we go over, especially particularly the... The Asian world, you go to India, you go to Indonesia, you go to all those different places, China in parts that where you're allowed to go in now. <coughs> I remember when I was in northeast India, the, the, uh, the army came through and wanted to know if we were buying or offering money. That was a real problem. And uh, the Catholic Church does that, well known for doing that over there. They control most of the jobs when it comes to denominationalism. <coughs> they are the largest one. And so uh, uh, they were checking, making sure we weren't offering money, you know. And so uh, we have to have choice, free will, if Christianity is ever going to work. And God understood that. And so <clears throat> the, uh, the, the idea of religious oppression was a big part of this. And so when we... Look at the pre-revolutionary time, the days before that. And of course we had the American colonies. It was only natural 
that the Church of England, which was the established religion, and remember, we talked about uh, Henry VIII and, and Bloody Mary and Elizabeth and, and those people that came, uh, Edward, and some of them uh, were pro-Catholic like Mary, some of them were Protestant, and uh, King Edward, or King George, excuse me, King Henry, there's so many of them, uh, he, for the most part, established the Church of England. Okay, So it was only natural by the time King George came around and uh, the Revolutionary War came around and, and, and prior to that, that the religion of England would find its way to the colonies. Right After all, they were British colonies. It was British North America. And so <clears throat> that was something that was... Uh, was going to happen as well as uh, uh, their politics came. And, of course, we, we remember that well from history, their politics. It's a monarch. It was kingly rule. And uh, to satisfy the colonies, they had let them establish a certain uh, modicum of, uh, of authority where they could rule themselves. But, in essence, they answered to the king. And the king could do what he wanted to. And so... As a result of that, in the pre-Revolutionary War days, the most popular well-known church was the Established Church, also known as the Church of England. And that was what, for the most part, was happening over here in the British colonies. Uh, they weren't the only religion, let's keep that in mind, but they were the vast majority of, of uh, religious adherents, and every other religion fell in disfavor, they were looked down upon, excuse me, and uh, persecution against anyone other than the Church of England was common, okay? Uh, which makes sense, right? You, you have a political tyranny, you're going to have a religious tyranny. We've seen that already, right? You think, you look at religion, you think, well, the whole purpose of religion is to please God. Well, that wasn't what the Catholic Church was doing, was it? The whole purpose of their religion was to please the Pope and fill the coffers and have control over the masses. In fact, probably no one in the world was more politically minded than the Popes at the time when uh, it was really going big. They, they were in competition with the kings of the different nations of the world. They wanted to have absolute power. And so it goes beyond that. Now... The clergy of the established church, the Church of England, ruled the colonies with an iron fist. Now, what was one of the problems with the Catholic Church? That the people revolted? They ruled with an iron fist. Right Now we have the Church of England doing the exact same thing. So how long is that going to last? <clears throat> well, it lasts a little while. But the people who came out of the Catholic Church and generations following that they could still remember, or they had been taught what had happened. So at some point, they raise up, and they look around, and they say, Wait a minute. We're right back where we were. What's going on? Why would we be under any kind of a religious, tyrannical rule? But doesn't that go against all common sense? <clears throat> what about religion makes a person think that you can have a rule of tyranny over people who willingly submit to a religion. Beyond that, they were making people 
become members, right? They would fine you. They would threaten you. You know, we're going to see that when we get into this uh, uh, movement a little further. So, in March 1624, in Virginia, um, it was declared that all people must attend divine services on Sunday. It was the law. How would that go over in a free world today? How would that how would that go over in the United States today? <clears throat> Most freedom loving people don't want to be told what to do anyway. I think that's a problem with, with humanity in general, isn't it? We don't want God telling us what to do. How are we gonna react if someone some person tells us what to do when it comes to something we feel like ought to be a free choice. And it is a free choice, isn't it? God uh, requires us to uh, be faithful in attendance. He requires us to be faithful in doctrine. He requires us to be faithful in every aspect of life to Him, but He lets us make that choice, right? That's, that's why Christianity is so wonderful. We choose to limit ourselves in certain areas and to advance ourselves in other areas. And so uh, they would even go as far as say, hey, if you missed and you didn't have the right excuse, they find you five pounds of coffee, for instance, if you missed on a Sunday. If you missed a month's worth of Sundays, 50 pounds of coffee. Or so many pounds of tobacco or whatever the case may be, they find you, you know, it's like uh, going to school. If you don't come back with, a, with a, the appropriate doctor's excuse, you're in trouble. You go to work, you miss, you don't come back with the appropriate doctor's excuse. Uh, you know, however the system is set up, you get so many points toward uh, eventually getting fired, right, or getting written up, or whatever the case may be. So that's how this Church of England was... Uh, Operating. Now, each person was told to conform to the canons of England. Now, <clears throat> what's a canon? We talk about the canon all the time. There is a canon we follow. C-A-N-O-N. The Bible. That just means a uh, measuring stick. A canon is something that we, that we uh, abide by. We measure ourselves by this canon. And so the Church of England had a canon. And so they were warned to uh, conform to the canons of England and to yield ready obeisance, obedience to them under pain of censor. Okay, what's censor? What do we, uh, we ever hear that term? We hear it in uh, uh, the legislature, the Congress all the time, threatening to censor a member who violates the rules. Okay, now... Under our system, that censor may just simply be a statement, right? You, uh, you do something in violation of uh, House rules or Senate rules, they may censor you. They may make a statement saying, we acknowledge that Senator or Representative so-and-so violated the rules in some way. Same thing with this. They would let people know. They might even go so far as to do other things to you. Uh, again, they could find you, might even put you in jail, right, if you're not doing what you think they ought to do. But the whole point of being censored under pain of censor is for your fellow man to put pressure on you. Hey, what, what do you mean you're not conforming to the, 
to the church. What are you, a heretic? Let's look back over history. What did they do to heretics? Well, they killed some of them, didn't they? And so they had to conform to these rules put forth by the Church of England. <clears throat> also, now understand this. We're getting back to this idea of money and finances. No man was allowed to sell his tobacco until the preacher gave permission. And each year at the tobacco harvest, a man was appointed to visit each plantation to collect the minister's portion out of the first and best tobacco. <clears throat> really? So the minister appoints someone. That sounds an awfully lot like the bishops of the Roman church appointing someone to go collect money from the people Setting taxes, so is, is this a tax? That's exactly what it is, isn't it? It's a tax. So we're going to go through your best and first tobacco, and we're going to get what belongs to the preacher, and you can have the rest. It's not going to last long, is it? Brother Joe. Uh, yeah, they had, they, you know, when we talked about, uh, <clears throat> they did it the same way the Catholic Church did it. They would met, they would meet, and of course, what the, what the Catholic Church called it? A diet, right? And they would uh, lay down rules. Well, the Church of England would do the same thing. They would meet, they would congregate, and they would set forth rules, and they would put that into writing, and they would preach to the people about it. And so it, it would just simply the canon or the rules by which, you know, they'd make a declaration or something of that nature. You know, I don't know that they called it, uh, what was it that, uh, I, can't, uh, I fail now, my memory fails me, what the Catholics would call it when they would have a diet and they would meet and they would put it out. Maybe Preston can think of it here in a moment. But uh, uh, the Church of England would do a similar thing. And so they would have a set of rules or a canon by which to follow and, you know, and that's what the statement means. You have to conform to this. Uh, you know, whether they had an official name for it, and I'm sure they did, but uh, I can't, it escapes me right now. But they certainly had uh, had it uh, put down. It was official. It was an edict of some sort. And uh, maybe that's the word I was looking for for the, uh, the Catholics. So any organization can put forth an edict. Right, this is what we do, and this is what we're going to do. And, of course, with the Church of England, with the Catholic Church, with any other legislative body, uh, conferences, right? They can change that as they choose. Last year said this, this year we're going to change it. You know. Yeah, and they do. Good comment. All right, any other questions? Okay. <clears throat> well... That was 1624. 1632 rolls around. They revised it a little bit. People began to buck up some. But it still had the same spirit of tyranny. Okay, uh, Non-attendance at services. You didn't have to bring them coffee anymore. You didn't have to give uh, whatever. Uh, you had to give one shilling. Okay, They weren't going to take a pound of your tobacco or five pounds of your coffee. You had to pay money. Okay. They taxed you for not coming. 
And uh, <clears throat> what was one of the big deals with uh, the colonies, politically speaking, with England? They just throw a tax on you. Had you had nothing to say about it. This is the same thing, but it's within the religious body. You didn't show up for attendance. You give a shilling. <clears throat> now, the daily life of these clergymen is very similar to what we've been reading about in the Catholic Church. They spent their day hunting and punishing those who they believed to be heretics. Okay? Sounds like Catholic Church. So, that's 1632. 1624, uh, you know, people get a little tired of it. 1632 rolls around. Okay, they change it a little bit, but it's still tyrannical rule. 1642, the Act of Uniformity of that same year, 1642, was enacted. And the purpose was to uh, preserve the purity of doctrine and the unity of the church that all ministers whatsoever which shall reside in the colony are to be conformed to the orders and constitution of the Church of England and laws therein established, and not otherwise to be admitted to teach, preach publicly or privately. So what, what, what's the response? Uh, 1624, 1630-whatever, the people are getting a little irritated. So what's the Church of England do? Okay, we're going to set down another law. We're going to have another edict. You can't publicly teach against it. You can't publicly or privately preach against it. You're going to have to conform. And this was uh, uh, 1642, or we're going to have a big problem. Now, that same act directed the governor, okay, to enforce the law rigidly, and the wording is all nonconformists, compelling them to depart the colony with all convenience. If you're not going to conform, we want you out of here. You have to leave. It had gotten to that point. So the people were getting fed up, right? Now, <clears throat> particularly, the clergy began to wage war against the Quakers. Is that a familiar name to us? We think of the Revolutionary War. We think of the times prior to that, the reason for coming over here, this religious persecution, and now we all think of the Quakers, right? And so they began to focus on the Quakers, now, the Quakers left England under persecution. So they could worship as they chose. Uh, so naturally, the established church, the Church of England, would focus on them as they came to the colonies. Now, as a side note, the 37th President of the United States, Richard M. Nixon, uh, Richard Milhouse Nixon, if you didn't know what his middle name was, was a Quaker. I don't know how many people knew that. Uh, you know, now I don't know, uh, knowing the history of Richard Nixon, <clears throat> that he was anything much, but he grew up in a Quaker household. His mother was a Quaker, and she converted his father to method, from Methodism to Quakerism. So <clears throat> if you look up Richard Nixon, and a lot of times uh, you'll see the president, the years they served, the religious affiliation, Richard Nixon is always associated with the Quaker church, just as a, I thought that was interesting. So, <clears throat> notice how the Quakers were described by the legislative authorities. They were unreasonable, they were turbulent sort of people who, contrary to laws, daily gathered assemblies and congregations of people teaching and publishing lies, 
miracles, false visions, prophecies, and doctrines tending to destroy religion, laws, communities, and all bonds of uh, civil society. In fact, captains of ships who came and went from Europe to the colonies were fined 100 pounds of sterling uh, for bringing Quakers into the state of Virginia. And all Quakers were imprisoned without bail. Okay? Now, were, is the Quaker religion, the religion we read about in the New Testament, absolutely not. Uh, their description is of the Quakers was fairly accurate because they were teaching things in contradiction to what the Bible teaches. But, notice when people try to put down a movement, especially a religious movement, they always use similar terminology, don't they? What they say about Paul? He's a problem. He's stirring up strife. Uh, Justin the silversmith turned the world upside down with this teaching. So it's the same attitude, okay? Now these we're not talking about New Testament Christians, but... New Testament Christians and the apostles suffered the same way under threat of death. Okay, we see that in Acts 24 verse 5. Talk about the sect of the uh, uh, Nazarenes. Paul called, uh, or Felix called Paul a pestilent fellow. And so, uh, like the Church of England and the Catholics before them, the Jews... uh, judged according to their laws and not God's laws, and so did the Catholics in the Church of England. Any comments, questions? So we're seeing this movement, and we're seeing, and we need to understand what's pushing the people toward this restoration. Uh, But it wasn't just the Quakers that was the focus of the Church of England. Now we're going to be introduced to to the first time hearing a name to a prominent denomination, the Baptists. Okay. The Baptists were also targeted. Now, the first Baptists came to Virginia in 1714. Now, this group of Baptists are not the same group that exists today. They're wholly different in uh, their beliefs. But uh, they came in 1714, 50 years later or so, on the eve of the Revolutionary War, they had grown in number and they were quite a force to be reckoned with in the religious realm. And they weren't going to be quieted. They weren't going to let the Church of England quiet them down to keep them silent. So uh, uh, in January 1768, uh, several Baptists were arrested and charged before three magistrates. Okay. Now, this is what it is said about them. These men are great disturbers of peace. Does that sound familiar? Right along the same uh, way of describing them. They cannot meet a man on the road. I thought this was interesting. But they must ram a text of Scripture down his throat. Reminds me uh, several years ago when Brother Garland Elkins was on the Phil Donahue show. I don't know if you all remember that. Back in the 80s, there was a church in Texas that had withdrawn from this woman because she was living in adultery and fornication, and so she sued the church and got a millions of dollars settlement against them. Okay? And uh, uh, eventually played out that that was uh, denied, but at any rate, 
Brother Elkins was on the Phil Donahue show, and this woman was on the Phil Donahue show with her lawyer, several Christians that uh, uh, a lot of friends of mine, in their, when they were younger, were in that audience. And so uh, uh, Phil Donahue was questioning uh, Pastor Elkins, Reverend Elkins. It's whatever word he used at the time. He was just continually calling him something else. Of course, you know, I guess he didn't know better. <clears throat> but at any rate... He would ask Brother Elkins a question. Brother Elkins would respond with Scripture. I mean, just, I, I don't know how many of y'all knew Brother Elkins, but it's just like he had an ironclad memory. I never saw him read from the Bible. He just quoting, 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 quoting. It's just amazing. And uh, so Phil Donahue would say, ah, Pastor, I understand you're saying something about the Bible, but what about, what do you say? So I say what the Bible says. And so you see that disconnect that people aren't paying attention to what the Bible says, right? And so we see that happening. But anyway, uh, these men, these Baptists, were ramming a text down someone's throat every time they met them on the street. So, again, not the New Testament church, but they were treated like those people who were being punished, right? Now, uh, the magistrates offered to release the Baptists. Now, you remember what happened to Peter and John? Is it Acts chapter 5? What did they do to them? They beat them, threw them in jail, finally had to send them away, right, and told them what not to do. Don't preach. Don't mention the name of Jesus. Well, these magistrates offered to allow these Baptists to leave, but stop preaching your doctrine. They refused. They kept him in jail. Eventually it went to court. Guess who defended them? You ever heard of the great revolutionist Patrick Henry? Patrick Henry rode 50 miles to uh, uh, defend these people, these men, and he did defend them. And ultimately, through his charismatic, and he was an amazing individual, he stood up and he said, Look, here is the problem. You have these men thrown in jail for preaching the gospel. Now look, we understand they weren't preaching the gospel. They were trying to get back, I believe, to what the Bible said, but at any rate, he said, "There, you've put them in jail for preaching the gospel. Now, it's one thing to think that. It's a whole other thing to say it out loud in public, right? And then it gets everybody's attention. Wait a minute. People weren't putting it together. Patrick Henry is right. They're in jail because of their belief. And so the case was dismissed. The men were released. So they went back to business doing what they were normally doing. And so uh, this persecution, though, continued. Now, what happens under persecution? What normally happens under What happened to the Christians when persecution came their way? We see it in Acts chapter 8. Huh? Well, yeah, they, they, they had to in uh, Rome and in uh, Jerusalem to a certain extent. But what, what happened when Paul, Saul at that time, began to murder and throw in jail men, women, and children? What did the, what did the disciples do? They went everywhere preaching the word. That's what happens under persecution, brethren. 
The church will grow when it is under persecution more than at any other time uh, in its existence. And so uh, a movement erupted, persecution happened, and uh, despite opposition from the Church of England, it continued to grow. Now, eventually, eventually, by the time of the the... Revolutionary War, about two-thirds of the people supported the nonconformists, okay? But that nothing changed until Thomas Jefferson put forth a bill uh, in 1779. We'd gone through the Revolutionary War. Uh, we'd gotten our independence. You're going to be able to worship however you want to based on this bill in 1779, but it wasn't until 1801 that the final vestige or small groups, the last influence, was finally gotten rid of in the United States with the Church of England as far as being an oppressive, ruling religion. Now, uh, I think it is very important to understand the First Amendment of the United States. And this is uh, what brought this about. The First Amendment. Have you ever heard the term separation of church and state? Well, nobody gets it right, especially in the political realm. There, it, nowhere in that amendment does it even suggest that the government should be separated from religion. That word is not in there. Here's what it does say. In 1791, Congress passed the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And then, of course, it goes into, adds with that freedom of speech, freedom of the press, right to assemble, things of that nature. But, but at what point did that amendment say you have to separate church from state? It's not in there. What it did say was you can't have the Church of England and require anybody to be a member of it. You can't prevent somebody from having another church that they want to be a member of or freely exercising uh, their faith in whatever way they choose. Church Separation of church and state doesn't even exist. It doesn't even exist. But the people just swallow it hook, line, and sinker. Why? Because just like the Bible... They're taking someone else's word for it, right? Taking some, you know, when I was younger, I thought separation of church and state was a law. It's a misnomer. It's not even accurate. So at no time did the founding fathers intend for that to be the case. So, any comments, questions? Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> sure. The, the yeah, the problem the difference in here and there was the people were fed up with being separated by an ocean from the people who ruled them. They had no say in what was going on. They felt 
exiled, right? There's someone way over there telling us what to do with our daily business. Why? And so it all, I don't think there was any one thing that brought it about. It all brought it about. And so politically and religiously speaking, the people in the colonies said, we're not going to put up with it anymore. You didn't put up the Catholic Church. Now we're not going to put up with the Church of England. And you would think that the people who were a part of the Church of England that fought so hard, you know, the separatists, the, the nonconformists, the, you know, as far as the Catholic Church went, that they would recognize and understand that. But what does power do to people? Corrupts. Corrupts. Okay? It takes a very special individual to be able to be endowed with power and to handle it properly. Do we see that in the church? We see elders in the church who, who go beyond that which is written. Paul said, don't go beyond that which is written, he told those in Corinth. So we can see it is just like history repeating itself. They wouldn't have gotten it, and the people did do that. They said, wait a minute. You see, do we see something similar here? So, so what did all this bring about? Uh, it brought about this reformation inside the Church of England. John Wesley, we are familiar with him. He has at least two denominations named after him. You know, or, or in honor of him, you have the Wesleyan church denomination, then you have the Methodist. And there are a myriad of, of uh, Methodist uh, churches, right, uh, that are different in so many ways. But while in England, John Wesley noted the tyranny of the Church of England. Now, here's something that's very interesting to me is just like uh, Martin Luther, he talked about it. He even sent missionaries to uh, the United States, and we're going to talk about it. And, uh, but he never left the Church of England. Never left the Church of England. And uh, uh, that's exactly what happened with uh, Martin Luther. Any comments? Questions. All right, now, we're going to pick up here next time, and we're going to talk a little bit about John Wesley, only as far as it is important to recognize what he did, because we are then going to be introduced to what I believe is the very first restoration mover of which we have very much information on. Now, he wasn't uh, an Alexander Campbell or a Barton Stone, but his name was James O'Kelly. And if you want to do a little study on James O'Kelly in preparation, you can do that. All right, thank you so much.